the gloves are about to come off. It is time to drop your butt. <laughs> Welcome back to Drop Your Buffs. I'm Sean Ross. And I'm Ricard Foyer. And today we have a very special treat because we're joined by Australian Survivor executive producer David Forster to talk all things Heroes v. Villains and what goes into making an iconic season of Survivor. So first of all, welcome, David, and congratulations on wrapping a truly iconic season of Survivor. How are you feeling now that the season is wrapped? Well, thank you, Sean. Thank you, Ricardo, for having me. Um, I'm really happy it's wrapped. Uh, I think it was a really special season to work on. Um, and I'm really just glad we could provide a season of Survivor that the audience just loved. Yeah, we did love it. We've been only watching AU for a couple of years, Sean and myself. And when we started watching... I didn't hear a lot of buzz about it in the U.S., and I feel like specifically after um, Blood vs. Water, people started chatting about it, but it was still this like thing that, that was niche and people didn't bring up. This season, I cannot believe how many fans of American Survivor are obsessed, obsessed with it. And it's been really, really nice to see that we're not the weirdos on the outside trying to <laughs> get ourselves in like every everyone's jumping on board and it's really special and i think i kind of wonder if it's your perception that paramount plus briefly loading the seasons onto there is what created that buzz in the u.s potentially i actually think it's the crossover of the twines i think mm-hmm. i think sandra and nina in season seven brought a lot of U.S. fans to the show and went, oh, that's interesting. What are they going to do on that show? And then us bringing Nina back for Heroes v. Villains, which was always going to happen because she was brilliant mm-hmm. and she got injured and that was sad. Um, I think I think that really helped bridge the gap because it, it was that entry level into, you know, what is a very different show, as you've probably noticed. Yeah. And I mean, you've been working with Survivor AU since the reboot in 2016, correct? Correct. You say the reboot, we just say the start, because the (laughs) The first (laughs) two seasons were not real. Okay. You've been there since the beginning. Oh, yeah. (laughs) What was your role back then? And how has that evolved over the years? So I started as what was called um, host producer, which is a role we kind of created for Jonathan because Jonathan was new to the space. You know, he's a very good actor, but he kind of wasn't in the world of reality TV. And so we thought, well, we'll give him a guy who can help walk him through it, brief him on the story, you know, help him through what to do and how to do it and talk through what we want to achieve at tribal councils and that sort of thing. So I started as Jonathan's producer for the first two seasons, which was basically everywhere Jonathan was, I was. Everything he did, um, I kind of produced him on. And then from there, I got promoted to series producer, which is kind of like, I don't think there's an equivalent in the US, but it's sort of like a creative showrunner. So you're looking after challenges and twists and um, basically everything that isn't, uh, everything creative that's on screen is sort of your department. And then I did that for seasons four and five and six. And then I got the gig in season eight this year, the EP gig. So you skipped Blood versus Water. 
Blood versus Water is the only season of Australian Survivor I have not worked on, correct? Wow. Okay. Were you still <laughs> like, keeping an eye on it? I definitely watched it. It was, I tell you what, it was really interesting to watch it as a viewer and not from the inside. Um, and I learned a lot watching it as a viewer. And I hope I could apply that to season eight. And so now as an executive producer, explain this to me who has never worked in television. Like, What do you do as an executive producer? And how big is the crew that makes this show? Okay, so the crew that makes the show, there's probably 100 Australians and maybe 200 locals. So Samoans or Fijians or wherever we're shooting. Um, but the... What an executive producer does is really I'm just in charge of two, well, the, the, the entire show on the ground. And then also from a production point of view, you're the head of the production as well. So you're talking about crew welfare and there's problems with transport and this, that, and the other. So you're kind of problem solving on a production level, but you're also directing the creative team, which is the series producer, our games producer, our entire story team, which is about 15 to 20 producers. So you kind of just guy driving the ship people just come to you with problems and you say yes or no really <laughs> love that so you decide in uh in this season to tackle one of the most well-known themes that survivor has ever done heroes versus villains which is probably the most beloved season of u.s survivor what made you to uh, decide to tackle this theme well, actually, I just want to correct you there. The most beloved season of U.S. Survivor is season 41. Um, but, <laughs> but we didn't want to do 41 when we hadn't done 40 other ones. So we, we thought yeah. we'd do Heroes versus Villains. No, we were looking for a theme that was really just uh, – that was iconic and that – because we're very early on in our Survivor development. You know, we're only eight seasons in. So we're – we're taking a lot from what the U.S. has done in thematically and helping helping to build on that. And and Heroes v. Villains is such an iconic premise. We all go to the movies. Every story has an antagonist and a protagonist. You know, the heroes win in the end. You know, this everyone understands in their bones that story structure. So, and it's really easy, easy in inverted commas, to cast because people really print as heroes or villains you probably have questions about that, but they <laughs> but they, <laughs> they can invert those stereotypes really easily as well. I really wanted to find heroes that played as villains and villains that played as heroes, you know, because everyone is complex. Everyone's yin and yang. Everyone's got a hero and a villain inside. Character is defined by action, so whatever your actions are will create whether you're a hero or a villain. So it's such an interesting concept for a storyteller that I think that's why we wanted to do it because there's a lot of fertile ground. Was there any hesitation about having to live up to the American heroes versus villains? I'm going to say no, uh, just because although we do have a lot of crossover fans who watch both, in Australia, I'm surprised, but about 80% of our fans don't watch the US show or might have in the past, but don't watch it regularly. Um, so I think we had, um, yes. Um, from me as a fan of the US show, there was there was some pressure, but not really. Okay. So in casting, you decided to split both returning players and newbies with this upcoming season, which goes 
against what we did in Heroes Villains in the U.S. Was it ever the plan envisioned as being an all-star season, or was there always going to be that element of newbies? It wasn't ever going to be an all-star season simply because we don't have the amount of players to draw from. Well, we do, but you know, we wanted to pick some. We wanted to. We always try to keep it fresh and. You know, sometimes we get a lot of flack for having returning seasons because we've had, even though we've only had one in All Stars, which was season five, um, we wanted to really just see that dynamic between new new players and and old players. And I think that if you have a fans versus favorites type of thing, it's it you don't get it straight away. And because we have such a long break until the oh, sorry, a long time until the merge. You know, if we had a fans versus favorites and stacked them all on one tribe, then you wouldn't see them interact until ep 12, ep 13. Um, so with this theme, we were able to put them on both tribes, dot, you know, pepper them about and see how that go. And look, the new players often come in with a, a hesitation and a, a scared to, to move in front of these big players, but big players come in with a target. So it's 50-50, really. You know, the new players can slide under the radar, like Liz, for the first few days of the game, while the Georges and the Shawnees, or the Shawnees, as you say, are basically, like, <laughs> taking all the heat. So there's an opportunity in both ways to play the game. Um, and interestingly, three newbies at the end, of a, yeah. and, and all returnees on the jury. Now, when you're casting newbies as heroes and villains. Heroes, that's a great thing to cast a newbie as because, of course, they're going to be thrilled. But, you know, let's take a Sarah or a Mimi and you say, so (laughs) you're going to be a villain, actually, based on the events of your real life. (laughs) Is that ever tricky to do? Or did you have trouble slotting them into those roles? Uh, Yes, we did. But I think as... Ricard can probably attest when you're on Survivor, you're kind of a different version of yourself um, in some way. And I think we wanted to say to the Mimis and the Sarahs, you're like, hey, the, you know the Sarah that pushed Miss Grease down the stairs? Um, that's the Sarah <laughs> we want you to lean into on Survivor because we want you to be that version of yourself, that little cheeky. And, and here's the thing, like villains in Australia, we have this kind of larrikin culture where being a bit, um, being a bit rude and a bit cheeky is kind of what, endears each other in, to each other in the culture. So that kind of villainous thing transformed into cheekiness and kind of tongue-in-cheek and thumbing your nose at society, and that's quite understandable in Australian culture. So, the, you know, Liz's resting bitch face, for example, was and her Russian background was almost an, – and the bad girl of athletics was kind of enough to print her as a villain for us. Yeah, there was a bit of a long bow, but – you know, we weren't going to cast criminals, so I, I, th- I think we, I think we, uh, as much as I'd love to cast some fun criminals, um, we have we wanted to cast people that the audience could understand, or they're a bit villainous. But I think if Liz were to come back again, she would probably play as a villain. So you know, we'll see. Yeah. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way (laughs) to put her on the villain's tribe. Uh, So you do think that Sarah pushed Miss Grease down the stairs. I I will take Sarah's word for it. Whatever word that is. Well, I believe she said she didn't do it. So Well, that's not what Miss Grease said. (laughs) Hey, cast Miss Grease. I just want to cast Miss France just so I can hear that every day. 
(laughs) (laughs) Were there any former players that you really wanted to see on this season that for whatever reason weren't able to make it? Yes. Benji. And uh, Mm. he was unavailable, which was a shame because I think he's one of our greatest villains Um, Mm. uh, in season three, obviously. He very famously got Sean not to play the idol for Matt and then Matt went home, his greatest villain. And that was, for me, one of the best moments of our version of the show up until now. So I was kind of like, come on, Benji. But he, he's in a new relationship. He's got a new job. He just couldn't do it this year. So that was a shame. But hopefully we'll get him next time. And no no other uh, past players that you wanted in the heroes section? Uh, no? There would have been some in the mix, but I, you know, that process was a year ago and I'm trying to visualize the whiteboard and who was on it, but I just can't. I mean, I know you just slapped a whole bunch of random names up there because the only hero there was Rogue. (laughs) You had to fill in all the other spots. Um, And I know that must have been hard because nobody else was really a hero. I think in Rogue's (laughs) words, and Rogue genuinely believed she was the only true hero on that tribe. And her truth is our truth, you know, and she's... Apart from Jerry, who, oh no, sorry, not Jerry, apart from Matt, who was saving lives, you know, Rogue believed her mission of saving animals is, you know, a heroic job. And she kind of saw it in a very black and white terms. And, and I, I'm happy for Rogue that, you know, we could put her on the heroes tribe, but, you know, I guess the rest of her tribe didn't feel that way. So <laughs> it's always interesting when people are cast in certain broad archetypes like hero and villain, brain, brawn. And I've always felt there is a story that the producers have in mind when they are casting all of these folks. And for me, I was the first season to ever have full online casting because of COVID in 2020. Um, And so I felt like my role that I needed to play narratively, they did not have a sense of who I really was as a person. They didn't know my stature. They didn't know my size. They did not know my strength. And I feel that... I was not staying in my lane narratively of being maybe the weaker queer character that had a really good story, but maybe would have been out a little bit sooner, or maybe would have been a Romeo like season 42 that was able to be under the radar till the end. Is it hard when you cast these people and you might have a vision in your mind of how well they're going to do or what their story is going to be, and they in no way live up to it or go that path? Uh, first of all, I'll say that I don't think any producer would ever want you to be a Romeo, um, because <laughs> that's not a character anyone would ever <laughs> want to produce. But uh, <laughs> I get what you're saying, uh, but I will say that I. Uh, uh, <laughs> what I will say is that every every character is going to surprise every character. Every cast member is going to surprise you in one way or another. I think Survivor is a really hard thing to cast online or in person anyway, because unlike casting a singing show or a cooking show where you've got a set of skills and we see them on display and then we say, objectively, he can cook or she can sing. Whereas with Survivor, there's no set thing that makes a great player. You could argue it's a lot of things, you know, whether it's physicality or whether it's, you know, strategic or or confidence or social ability, but those are very hard things to see until you put people on the island and in their elements, in the elements there. You don't know. This, you cannot ever cast someone and know what they're going to be like three days in with no food and no sleep. You just, you just can't ever predict that. So I think that there are characters who 
live up to what we expect and there are ones that always somewhat disappoint us and there's ones that absolutely surpass our expectations like Liz. You know, we didn't I didn't think that Liz was going to be such a clever and 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 calculating player as she was. I mean, in hindsight I look back and go, of course, she's, you know, this kind of badass Russian pitch lady which I love. You know, but she but uh, in the casting process, she was kind of quite quiet, quite reserved. You know, we knew she'd be serious. We knew she'd be, um, we knew she'd be good physically. Uh, we knew she would you had some good social connections in her life. And people with large social circles are often quite good at Survivor because they're used to managing, you know, a lot of feelings and emotions of friends and things. But shorter, no, it's it's very hard to know how people are going to react when you put them on the island. So this is interesting because we're talking a lot about the cast and I feel like the unique thing or the thing that sets Australian Survivor apart from US Survivor is that it's a very uh, person-driven story. It's a narrative about people where if we were to contrast this with, say, Survivor 44, it feels like in American Survivor, at least currently, it's a show where the advantages and idols and various game mechanics are what is propelling the story forward. And so, you know, when we're watching these two things at the same time, it really makes Australian Survivor feel like old school Survivor. And I'm wondering, is that a part of the vision that you have for Australian Survivor? Is that like a philosophy when it comes to the actual game mechanics and what's in the game as opposed to um, the characters and and which one of those things are going to drive the story forward? Yeah, it, it it's a bit of two things. One, I think if you look at the two seasons from a mechanics point of view, it's you can see the difference. So the US Survivor has 14 episodes, you know, 42 minutes an episode, basically, thereabouts, sometimes as a double ep. Australian Survivor has 24 episodes, and that's comprised of, you know, um, 18, 72-minute episodes and you know, six 42-minute episodes. So time on screen is so much greater. We have the time to develop the character, to see them at their worst, to see them come back from that, to see the interactions between them in the camp. You know, think of the amount of time you spent with Simon and George on that camp. You know, you felt like you were part of their relationship. You think of the amount of time you spent with all of our characters as opposed to the US season. Yes, they have less cast, but they also have so much little, so much less time to tell their story. Any given scene in the US Survivor will be, oh, she's thinking of voting me out. I've got to get her first. And then you have to tell the story of person B going around to all the other people to get that person first. And then by that point, you're at tribal council and all you had time for was plot. Or in the new version, 41 onwards, plot and game. And I think I get why the US has gone this way because they're 40, 44 seasons in. Like, you know, they've done what we've done, as you say, in the early days of Survivor. They've been there. They've told the human story many, many times. So I can understand why they've gone down this road, but it's a very different road to the one we're on now, which is, you're right, plot-driven, sorry, character-driven. What are their ups and downs? What's their story arc? And we get these incredible arcs. You know, this Simon arc is just blows my mind this year of how we went from the most reviled player up until season maybe 11, sorry, episode 11, through to the most loved player when he went home in episode 20. You know, so there's there's a lot 
there's a lot that we can do in that time frame. Yeah. Okay, we have a question from a very big fan of Australian Survivor. Hi, this is Kelly Wentworth, three-time U.S. Survivor player. And I just want to know, how do you determine as a group what twists will go into a season? How do you walk that line of too many versus not enough? Because I feel like the twists this season were perfect and they led to some of the most incredible moments I think I've ever witnessed on any season of Survivor. One of them being the immunity challenge at the most iconic tribal council. I think that was just fantastic. It played out perfectly. Obviously, if someone else had won that immunity, we may not have seen what unfolded before us. But I just love to know how you decide what twists you're going to use in a season and kind of what the process is there. Love, love the show. Amazing season. Keep doing what y'all do. Thank you, Kelly, the true winner of Second Chance. No, I am... <laughs> I, I think, still that moment when she dropped the ball my god the oh my god uh, man, <laughs> um but the good question the twists are obviously quite controversial we have to have them in australian survivor simply because we are commissioned for that amount of episodes and we have that amount of cast um we've made the decision not to have more cast because we feel like it would just be you know, you get lost in the forest of people on the island if there were 30 cast members. So instead we go with uh, non-limbs. However, I'm quite proud of the culture of non-limbs we've created in Australian Survivor. So there have been good ones, there have been bad ones. You know, like with the US seasons, you know, there's been good things and bad things. You kind of try things and hope that they work. And I think this season we were blessed because the right people were in the right places at the times those twists were scheduled to occur. Um, however, how do we come up with them? Well, it's literally me and a bunch of other producers and the network in a room up the coast, north coast of New South Wales, had, you know, having a lovely time, having a couple of wines and going, what if, what if we, you know, did it? challenge in the middle of tribal what if we you know voted off a jury member it's really we flesh it out and there's you know people who are for it and people who are against it would that be too unfair would that be too much power would that take the power away from someone so we really do talk it out before anything makes it you know to the island and so that specific twist of having the immunity challenge in the middle of tribal council which as kelly said led to and without it, may not have we may not have had what I think is the most iconic tribal council I've ever seen. Is that predetermined that in this round of the game, in episode whatever it was seven or whatever it was, um, that that is going to happen? Yes, yes, they are. And if you've ever worked in TV production, you'd kind of know that it's very, very hard to change something once it's in motion. So, for example, when you think about the background, that that challenge had to be built. It had to be lit. It had to be ready to go from the moment Jonathan says tonight is a little bit different. So, you know, there was literally 20 lighting guys standing by. And if the wrong person won immunity and we wanted to change it, then we're standing down people, we're, 
trying to work out their schedules to bring them back for when we want to do it in three days' time. You know, there's so much work that goes into organizing anything on a show like that, whether it's a challenge or a twist or even just moving someone from one camp to the other at the end of the night. You know, that takes a transport person and someone to look after them and a camera and audio and sound. All these things need to be in place and it's very, very hard to turn on a dime. And I don't think necessarily we should. I think we should allow the twist to play out when they're intended to play out and see what happens. And it's so weird that when it works out well, some of the audience are just like, well, that was clearly, you know, rigged or planned. It's like, I'm sorry for the good content, guys. Like, I'm sorry. We'll try and make it worse (laughs) next time so you don't think it's rigged. Every time a favorite player finds an idol, well, they just gave it to them. It's like, (laughs) Uh, if we could give people idols, trust me, some people wouldn't be getting idols. So we do have a question from a listener, and I, I wonder if his intention with this question was if Australian Survivor goes down the same path of being on the air for a very long time, many years to come, which is what we all hope. Do you, So this is from Ricky. Do you ever see Australian Survivor going down the twist-heavy route that American Survivor has gone down? In a short answer, no. I think... And I have thoughts about this particular season, but, you know, the segment recently um, from, I think, last week's episode with two fake idols in one segment and the deliberate um, choice to make a fake idol on one tribe different to the fake idol on another tribe but look the same. I just, for me, I I think that's a bridge too far. I think when the show is, for example, duplicitous um, or involved in the duplicity that another player can then exact on other players. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen this season, but someone's going to go home playing that idol, thinking it's real, with a piece of paper that says that it's real, and they've seen someone else's idol that is the... I don't think this is going to be a happy ending for some of these players. However, I think that a lot of what the US has done, they've basically... You know, they cut through the forest of this show and we just follow the path many times. And sometimes we, you know, for example, the birdcage, which I don't mind as a twist, is what we did in season five with Pandora's box. So we had a we had a box in the camp with two keys. They, you know, could open it at any time. Things like that. We we kind of done that. Safety without power was our idea as well. I remember Jonathan and I actually were sitting at lunch in Fiji and we thought, how about it? advantage that allows someone to eject themselves from tribal which is what luke did in season four and then that became safety without power which was you can leave but you don't get to vote and that kind of thing so i think i think there's a healthy sharing but uh i don't think we'll ever go that far i i, I don't think because we're telling a character driven story right we need the characters to have some kind of connection to reality rather than the game is so hard the game is something I can't possibly conquer. It's like you need to have a path to the end. Otherwise, why would you play? I mean, that's probably a question for you. Did you know, <laughs> can I ask, did you know that season 41 was going to be this new version of tricked up heavy survivor? Or did you think you were just getting into regular old survivor 39 days? Here we go. You know, I, I thought it was going to be the same old survivor. And Jeff came to Ponderosa three days before... Uh, the game began. We didn't know when the game was going to start. And we had already been in Fiji for a month. So it was a very long time because we were quarantining. We had to quarantine in LA. We had to quarantine in Fiji with the military monitoring us. Then Jeff had to quarantine. 
And he actually got a military escort to our camp and had to wear a mask. It was pretty cool to witness it all. And he told us it was going to be 26 days. And I could not have been the only one crying. No. I It broke my heart. And not only did it break my heart, I hate that I defaulted to automatically thinking no one will think I played a real season of Survivor. Yeah, I knew I knew it was just never going to be viewed the same, and that broke my heart. Uh, yeah, we didn't we didn't know any of this was coming, and then when we saw our buffs for the first time, and there was no uh, title, yeah, there was no theme. I was under the impression that oh, this is how they trick you. This is how they do the marooning. They give you a fake buff so that you don't know the theme until marooning is done. Yeah. No. And I just kept waiting for my real buff. I thought they were lying to us. I truly, with my whole heart, thought they were lying, and these weren't our real buffs. I, it's funny <laughs> and they you wanted say to that. keep it a secret. You say that, and all I can imagine is a meeting where someone's like, so we'll have two sets of buffs, and, and I'm just like, no, nah, that's never going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, because here's, here's what I was thinking. I was thinking of David <laughs> versus Goliath, yeah. where they all had their buffs, and he – you know, he hits the rope and unveils the theme. And I'm like, hose, you're all wearing buffs that say David and Goliath. What do you mean this is shocking? <laughs> um, so then I, it, it clicked in my head. That's how they tricked them. Mm. That's how they did it. And that was not the case. <laughs> Dude, always thinking two steps yeah. ahead, sometimes too far ahead. No, sometimes they, <laughs> sometimes uh, I think, I think with the US show now, as you say, I think it's just very twist heavy. But maybe not twist is the wrong word. It's very game heavy. You know, it's like the game could come in at any moment. Um, you know, for example, the last one where they went to the island and everyone got an idol. You know, it's sort of like uh, there's lots going on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of idols and advantages, I do want to talk about some of them. I agree with Kelly. I think it was the perfect amount. Uh, but I want to walk through some of them because you're talking about the fake idols put into season 44. Um, and I, I'm not <laughs> saying that you did this, but I want to talk about the cookie idol because uh, it's uh, like, I mean, obviously it played out incredibly where Simon finds this thing that looks like kind of like an idol it's got to be something but it doesn't have any instructions it's not on a string what is it was the concept when you came up with the cookie idol which i guess was a clue to the location of the actual idol that you would hope that somebody would mistake it for a real idol or a real advantage of some kind that is a happy accident and that is only a happy accident because of the beautiful man that is simon um <laughs> and uh, we we thought rather than just do an idle clue, regular old idle clue where it's like, you know, walk down the path, look for the trees, la, la, la. We thought, why don't we be a bit more if vague and get a scene out of it, you know, where someone's like, oh, what is this? This, it can't be, can't, it's, it's in the cookie jar, you know. There was also one at the heroes camp, which Ben found in the yeah. rice. So we thought those discoveries would happen kind of similarly, but they kind of happened a bit far apart from each other. So. Then he just went, oh, this is an idol. <laughs> um, and we <laughs> and we weren't going to shut that story down. You know, he never really asked producers, or if he did ask producers in interview uh, or in confessional, you know, they obviously would never say, we would never give that away and say, if he said, if this is an idol, we would say, do you think it's an idol? You know, that's the way those conversations go. So, and Simon's very good at convincing himself of what he believes to be true. So, mm -hmm. he decided that that was an idol and that's what he had. I think he 
because he had two idols in season six, I think he just thought, if the show made it, it's an idol. And we clearly made it. It mm. didn't belong in the natural environment. So, But the, the, the point of having no um, instructions to it was we wanted that confusion. We wanted that, what is this? Maybe I'll have a look around. Maybe Because if you stumbled across the coconut like Shawnee did and found the idol, then lucky you. Well done. But if you've got this clue and you're looking, then you're going to immediately start looking, right? You'd think, unless you're Simon. You're going to immediately start going, what is this for? You'll look at the tribe flag. You'll look at the camp. You'll look at the well. You just look for things. Something's up. Something's different. Something's here. That's what we were going for. A kind of someone who goes, what is this and how can I use it? And then they go around and but it obviously Simon wasn't the only one that thought it was an idol because a lot of the audience did too. They're like, no, it's an idol. No, it's a nullifier. Mm-hmm. So, whoa, maybe it's just a piece of wood with a gem in it. Who knows? <laughs> so I was ready to put money on it. I thought it was a nullifier. <laughs> we talked about it so in-depth, had so many ideas. So the cookie idol that Simon found was a clue specifically for Shawnee's coconut idol. Correct. Correct. So the gem okay. and the coconut, so the, the the disc and the coconut had the same gem. Um, and there was nothing else in the camp with a gem. So it was this kind of like, see, find that, find this. But in the, like kind of vague in a way, but vague is good. Vague created that amazing story. You know, if we had just mm-hmm. said that as a there is this is a clue an idol and it's hidden down there, then you've got a, a hunt for an idol. They might or might not find it. Someone might or might not be watching. But it's a story we've seen before. Whereas here we get this mm-hmm. this confusion, and not bad confusion, good confusion of what is it, and you know that all the way down. We thought Simon was going to play it for Stevie. You know, we thought in that tribal. You know, if George had really. I think he picked it correctly that Simon wouldn't. But if Simon had played it, he would have played it for Stevie. It wouldn't have been an idol. So it just kind of kept on giving and giving. We thought it was going to be used every week, but it was never used. So it was kind of fun. So I, I'm curious on your thoughts on this. I feel like Jonathan had a, a big slip up this season at Tribal Council when Simon asked, what is this? And Jonathan just blatantly said, because Jeff is very much, you get nothing from mm-hmm. me. I will give you nothing. I can't tell you what this is. I can't tell you if it has power. I give you nothing. But Jonathan blatantly said, that was a clue to a, that connected to a coconut that was hiding an idol. But in that moment, I feel like that was a slip up. And sin- like you are telling somebody what this clue is and that essentially the idol has already been found because you're now you're divulging what it was. Do you feel the same that that was a slip up on Jonathan's part? Uh, no, because that was something we well, it's something we decided to do, um, and the mm. reason why we decided to do it was we just couldn't put Simon through any more pain. You know, I think <laughs> we, it's like put the puppy down. Yeah, we just needed him to know <laughs> what had gone on, and also because it had already played out. We would never have said that if it hadn't been played or. Was out. And also, not only that, but both the idols that had been found had been played by that point, and the hero's disc had been found as well. So everything was done. And so we felt like mm-hmm. we can tell you now. But if, if the idols were still in play, if, you know, Shani still had that idol, or if Ben still had his idol was even in the game, we would have probably held off or said it differently. But I think because the story was done, we thought, now's okay, it's time to tell Simon just what that was. Because... The poor guy. He was dying. He was dying. I 
<laughs> I absolutely agree. He was going through so much and there was only, even if you had, I feel like there was a lot that would need to be done to make Simon look good in his tribe's eyes at that moment. But I, I do remember saying to Sean that that showed that he was telling the truth. Yeah. That he wasn't intentionally lying. And I do, I, I just remember feeling at the time that benefited Simon in some way. And I had conflicting feelings about that. So that's why I asked. It's, it's funny you say that. And I do see in the edit of the show, I can agree with that, that, you know, that makes, that vindicates Simon, right? But I think mm-hmm. that yeah. they've been with him for 35 days by this point. I think you've probably made up your mind about Simon by this point. <laughs> you know, I don't think that information is necessarily in my judgment, is going to change any player's view of Simon. So that probably had something to do with it. I think if they'd been in there for 10 days or five days, it might be different because, yeah, suddenly he's a truth teller mm-hmm. and he's sort of a lovable idiot, not a duplicitous rogue. Um, but, yeah. We'll, uh, uh, gotcha. I also wanted the audience to know, you know, because it, it was just so much confusion. Oh, God, what have we done? Yeah. <laughs> so we now know that idols, twists, everything is predetermined. And that makes a lot of sense from production standpoint. Now, can you get into the nitty gritty of how do you decide which episodes and what at what time to actually introduce the idols, to actually hide them, what days you mm-hmm. do it, what days you put the clues out? What gives you that idea of that's the right time? Well, generally, there are idols in from the beginning. The thing, you know, in the month you were on Ponderosa, in the times I'd saw them, I'd said, look, guys, there's stuff out there from the beginning, so get looking. Um, and I did say to them, you know, if idols are played, others will go in. So there was kind of a base idol. It, it changes every season, short, long and short, but um, there was a base idol this season in from the beginning, and then there was on top of that the cookie idol and maybe some other ones at rewards and things. But we don't, um, we don't really – we kind of – in terms of the twists, because we have a three-episode cycle – in Australia generally, we kind of go Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. Um, we like our twists to kind of play out within that week. We don't necessarily like them hanging over to the next week because it 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 kind of sometimes – so we try and resolve them within that time if they are going to affect some kind of story. But sometimes that's not possible because of the numbers. We, you know, we make some long-term changes if we have medical evacs. So obviously – Tragically, Jackie went home in Ep 1, and that kind of – we had a big meeting after that and went, okay, do all these twists still work where they're predetermined or do we have to shift them? You know, when is our merge going to be if we – you know, and, and those kind of questions happen really early on. Um, but really, we make the decision before the show when to do those things, even with the idols and things. You know, we, we, gen- we don't have – I can whip up an idol. It might take days to make and dry and if there's a – Metalworking. They're not like the US where it's a couple of beads on a string. You know, it's, it's I'm lazy. Which I get because you can make them. But yeah, ours are a little bit more involved. So sometimes if I have to call the art director and say, I need an idol by tonight, he'll be like, no, you can't have one. You know, so the, the, there is limitations to our power of what we can affect and change. And so that makes us better, though, because we can't just change it willy nilly. We have to yeah. let it, we have to plan it. Yeah. yeah, I remember. I actually just like to interject a little story. Um, Erica, the winner of my season, her water bottle broke, and 
it was like a big deal. That's her only source of like their mm-hmm. only way to carry water around. And they had to wait for somebody on Luvu to be voted out and take her bottle from her <laughs> to give it to Erica because they didn't have another one. So Sydney yeah. had to give up her bottle to give to Erica. <laughs> Oh, did Sydney get another one afterwards? Oh, she, no, she was gone. No, and they never gave it no, back. No, I mean, like, as a memento. So we give our water bottles to the players as a memento. Uh, no, she didn't get it back. No. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't think she cared. She was pretty angry. Um, <laughs> I, I, she was a pretty angry person. I would say that's um, called karma. I don't think yeah. she kept any of her outfit. She didn't keep any of her outfit. She didn't care about any of it. She she did buy her torch. Her dad bought her torch, but now she didn't care. <laughs> <laughs> maybe uh maybe erica can buy her a new water bottle with a million <laughs> no she won't <laughs> but yeah it's true do so, you give do you give contestants torches uh no no of course we can't no. freight them home again you know often they will um mm. we we give them their water bottles um and we you know they get to keep anything like their Anything they made or their idols they will go out with, they can keep that. Oh, uh, their buffs, obviously. Yeah. So, but we, I mean, I think that's a, that's a pretty much a booby prize. You know, if you walk out with an idol, you get yeah. an idol. You get a lovely <laughs> memento that is, you know, probably worth some money if you sell it on eBay, but that's about it. Um, but most people wouldn't do that because Simon has his hanging in his garage of doom. Mm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> It's probably cursed at this point. I, I always toy with like, should I tr- sell my tree mail? Should I not? I gave one to Sean. Sean has one piece of tree mail. I have his tree mail, yeah. Oh. It's special. Um, I, I, I've got lots of goodies. I've got lots of goodies too. That I've, uh, I don't have Jeff's garage full of snuffers, but I've, <laughs> I've got a few nice things. We do that lovely thing that they apparently do in the US season as well, uh, which is the we have an art party just before the end where the art department, who are generally – made up of lots of local craftspeople and, you know, really incredibly talented locals. They make things using our leftover wood and equipment and then we have a big auction where the crew and all the come and buy them. And there's some memorabilia there as well. And everyone makes a piece of art. Jonathan, for example, always does a drawing and he's a phenomenal artist, huh? which you'd never know about him. Yeah. And so he he's always go for hundreds of dollars. So we kind of raise all this money and then we give it to a local charity and everyone gets a piece of the show to go home with. It's a really beautiful thing. Oh. Um, but yeah, we do that every year. That's sweet. What can't Jonathan do? <laughs> Things that I can't say on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Text it to us later. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. So last season, Australian Survivor moved to the final three Tribal Council format after sticking with the final two for a long time. Is the final three here to stay? Short answer, don't bet your house on it. I think the goal is to keep the the cast guessing. Um, the goal is to – and then it's, this is sort of our version – of the US twisty game is we don't ever want the cast thinking they've got it locked because if you do, then you're going to lock into that alliance or that style of play for the next 10 days. We'll sail to the end, you know, and we'll be sweet. And that is not the game. We want the game to be fluid and moving and you want to be on your toes the whole time. So while in this way, it was a three for the last two seasons, that's no guarantee it'll be a three in the future. Um, 
it might be a two again, might be a four. Oh. You know, so <laughs> I think I mean it probably won't be a four. But you you know, you don't you don't want to ever think that that think the cast just goes, Oh, this is where this happens, so I know I, and we get a bit of that on Australian Survivor, you know, well you know, a merge is coming, drop your buffs is coming, you know, there'll be a non limb tonight. So people kind of try to guess. Um, but our goal as producers is to keep them guessing, and in that guessing comes the content. Mm. Okay, uh, I want to talk about the concept of the winner edit because this is something that is discussed ad nauseum online, on podcasts. People are counting the number of confessionals that people get, and they try to analyze who's going to be the winner based on the showing, and they compare the past seasons. And something interesting that came out of this season was that going into the final, George was the most heavily, based on confessionals, George was the most heavily edited finalist in Australian Survivor history. And it makes sense. He's a great confessionalist. He's a great storyteller. And then you had Jerry, Matt, and Liz, who were among the least uh, prominently edited finalists uh, in Australian Survivor history. So I'm curious what you make of the concept of a winner's edit. Is it something that you think about in post-production? Are you looking to tell a fulsome story about the winner's journey? Or is it something that we're putting way too much stock into? Um there's kind of two things there. One, that the amount of confessionals is a fun metric, um, but that's about all it is. I think our our head of post-production, who's a guy called Toby Trapel, who's a genius. Anyway, he's he, he always laughs when he sees those graphs because it's um, generally the people who get the most confessionals are the ones who are best at confessionals. If you're really good at telling the story, let's say there's a story that involves five or six people in the tribe, you know, it's a, a vote that is they've cobbled together a alliance of five or six of them. The person who's best at telling that story will end up telling it in the edit. And so when you get out there and someone might be tired or hungry that day, or they might be really low in energy, or they might not quite know the full story of what's going on, they're not going to be the main voice telling that story in the edit. The one who will be will the one who knows what's be the person who knows what's going on and can put it in a really fun and exciting way. And that almost always was George. Both of the things. George always knew what was going on and he always could tell it in a really fun and exciting way. So to get the full story in an entertaining version, you kind of default to George. And and I understand that because, as you say, he's brilliant at confessionals. However, sometimes you need to tell the story from a different point of view or there's another intersecting story and then that's when someone else will come in. I think the winner's edit, the winner needs to be understood by the audience as to why they won. And I'll, I'll put Liz up against Gabler. And I think Liz, you'd fully understand why she won the game, in my opinion. You know, you understand why she did what she did. Her jury pitch was really clear. Um, her The reason why she voted out George was really clear. The reason why she waited that long to do it was really clear. And then you could see why she won the game. Whereas with Gabler, we got to the final tribal of 43, and it's like, the winner is Gabler. And everyone kind of went, whoa, whoa hang on, what? What show did we just watch? How did I not understand that relationship that he had with the jury? How did I not understand why he would be a more impressive winner to them than the other two sitting there, including Owen, who was clearly the best player that season apart from um, Jesse, who wasn't there? You know, and I'm just like, I don't understand why he won. And if I don't, as an audience member, understand why you won the game, then I don't think you've got a winner's edit 
I think you've got a confusing edit. And so the winner's edit just should be setting the tone all throughout the season so that when it comes up that you won, it shouldn't be obvious. There's an obvious edit. Like, obviously, it was edited to look like George won and then he didn't, you know. And so you've got a little twist in the tail where the audience goes, oh, maybe I shouldn't try to presume everything. Maybe, oh, oh yeah, I mean, yeah, she did. She should have won. Yeah, actually, she did the right thing at the right time. Of course, we're just taking, we're just working with what we've been given with the content. You know, if George had won, if George had made it, won that final challenge and got the way to the end and got all the votes, I don't think his edit would have changed that much. I think if Jerry or Matt had won, then I think you might have seen a bit more of them. You know, I think throughout that post-merge season, post-merge episodes with all the moves that they made with George, um, and they were quite instrumental. And of course, we didn't get the chance to show everyone's involvement in everything, but Jerry was a big part. And George, you know, will if you ever speak to him, he'll talk to you. Jerry was very much a 50-50 partner. Now, of course, George gets all the airtime. You know, he's the... Uh, He's he's the person who gets all the glory, but Jerry was his right-hand man, and every, everyone who's ever played the game knows you need a wingman. You need a number two. You can't do it alone. So Jerry was that guy, and George very correctly identified him as that guy uh, and took him under his wing, and then they became this kind of uns- inseparable duo. Um, but, yeah, I think the winner's edit is really – it's just – what's the best way to put it? It needs to, you, it's an edit that allows the audience to feel satisfied with the winner because there's so much you don't see. You know, there's so much to choose from. We're filming 24 hours a day for 47 days and we end up making 35 hours of television. So you can think of what makes the cutting room floor hours and hours and hours, conversations on conversations. It's really, really hard to cobble it together in a way that makes sense and gives everyone an equal share of the story and that's why people miss out it's not a democracy it's a competition you know that not everyone needs to get the same amount of confessionals yes you want to hear from everyone and you want to feel like you know everyone but if you did then you wouldn't be getting the best told story you'd getting you know a round table discussion where everyone's got 20 minutes to say their piece and you've and you don't need that you need a story that you're thrilled to watch Speaking of confessionals, I just have to ask, um, all the showrunners and the producers for the American version, they're the ones who take us on our walks and ask us our questions. Are you one of the ones on site doing confessionals? Uh, I am not. I okay. do, I have done, but not this, not in this role. I, I don't really have the opportunity, because I'm the sole executive producer. I know that the US has a, a larger production team and larger creative team. I... I involve myself with the contestants as the only voice that they speak to that isn't doing a confessional. So they they speak to our producers doing confessionals, and then if they have any other questions, they come to me. They don't go to anyone else. So I'm really the only connection they have to the outside world. So Geordie and Matt's baby news, you know, I would tell them whenever a scan was happening on the outside world that everything was okay, you know. What? Yeah. You would? Well, because... I don't. Oh. Want, I want them to be focused on the game. I wouldn't tell that they wouldn't be chatting to their wife. But you know, for example, yeah, yeah. you know, I would say to them, the, you know, I think Geordie had his um, three months scan or something while we were in there, and I just I said to him beforehand, "Look, man, human to human, you need to know." 
Like, and also it's a long game. It's 47 days, you know. So yeah. I think if you have that scan on day 10 and you don't know if your wife's okay or your unborn child is okay, then you're not going to be focused on the game. You, I believe they're going to miss them still and we're going to get great I miss them content still without them having the uncertainty of whether their baby's okay. So like big news like that, I will – predetermined news or for example in season five when lee's mum had a stroke you know obviously we're going to tell them that um we walk in there to the tribe and pull them aside and say here's some big news you need to make a decision and then lee left because of it so and and flick's mum as well another one a great example things happen on the outside world and we make a call about whether the contestants should or shouldn't know that but there's also a conversation we have before they go in so mum lee um, Flick said, you know, my mom's really sick. She's got dementia. She might pass away. If that happens, tell me or don't tell me. Some people don't want to know. Some people are like, mm-hmm. please don't bring me that news. I'm focused on the game. So that's up to them. We just play the way they want to play. And I don't think it's unfair that they hear oh, I big love news that. from home. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm I'm quite envious, and not to make this about 41 again, I, I guess this is just the US franchise. I've always questioned you know if there's a medical situation and we it's actually not a big deal and they leave the game for no reason in the american version and they were actually fine that's heartbreaking to me Hmm. the you know production has invested so much in these people to be on the cast and a scrape that actually was not infected they're pulled from the game uh with me personally um my husband was nine months pregnant and the due date was at final tribal council and i was I asked, if I'm voted out of the game, will I get an update? And I did not get one. Even once I was voted out, I was wow. not allowed to find out if my baby was born or okay. And they were strict about it. And so there's not even an in-between of production making a decision on our behalf or giving us the opportunity. You have to tell your loved one. I had to tell Andy, if one of my parents was to pass away, if my mother was to pass away, do not call. If she's going to pass away, and I can potentially make it there in time, call, and I will leave the game. I had to make the decision, and if your family member calls, you're pulled from the game. There's no like sharing of information. You're just done. And so <laughs> I, I love that you were able to give that update. I, I'm not in all any way judging it. I think that is a great, great way to have them stay focused in the game. I love that. Well, I think the yeah, I th- I mean to to explain it again i think i think that my sole focus as the executive producer is to get them to play the best game they can mm. and sometimes and you have to make a call about whether that information is going to help them play a better game or not um and so as a, in a selfish way i'm protecting the game but in a human way they're people and i want them to feel like they're were supported by the show rather than a prisoner of the show i guess I love that. And that kind of takes us into Australian Survivor is putting out a casting call, which we chatted about uh, for the next season. What is your advice to the fans who want to apply? Yeah, please don't tell me how big a fan you are. Um, I, I It's really important that you understand that I am a huge, huge fan of the Australian Open Tennis Tournament. I love it. I go every year, but I'm not going to be any good at it. <laughs> Like, I just don't know how to play tennis. <laughs> so I can I can watch a lot of it and tell you what's wrong with it and where someone a player went wrong and how they screwed up that point. 
and where they're at in their head game, but I can't play it. And that is what I need the audience to understand is what makes a great Survivor player isn't necessarily being a fan of Survivor. Yes, that is an added bonus. If you can tell me all the votes and all the people that went home and all the twists, that's fantastic. I love that you're invested in it. However, we have had many, many fans of the show play the game and they are no better or worse than just the regular people who've never seen an episode. We need what makes a great survivor player, I think, is confidence, self confidence, the ability to say, I'm going to make this move and I don't care what my tribe thinks, or I'm going to ruin that relationship, but I have the self belief enough that I can build it up again, or I've got another relationship over here that will allow me to move forward in the game. It's the people who have who lack that confidence, then don't make a move and sit back and let moves happen to them and just kind of fall into this comfortable alliance or whatever they're in, or they never get a foothold because they don't have the confidence to call it out. So that self-confidence, you look at all the greatest players, that's kind of what they have is this self-belief. And I'm not talking about bravado or arrogance. I'm just talking about a stoic self-belief that what they're doing will work out in the end, or it's a good option for them at that time. That comes in all forms, you know, whether it's a, you know, five foot one cleaner or whether it's a CEO, it doesn't really matter. Some people are really confident in their own abilities, some are not. Um, some people are incredibly successful and racked with self-doubt and they just generally don't make good survivor plays. So it's kind of, if you're going to apply, just show me who you are. I want you to be the youest you you can be. You know, whatever that is, quirky, weird, different, I'm not going to judge you. I'm not here to judge you. In fact, I am. But I'm not here to judge you about who you choose <laughs> to be. But if you are interesting and different, inverted stereotype, maybe, everyone has really interesting pockets to themselves. People who think the little things that are embarrassing, the, the passions, the hobbies they have that they try to hide from their families and friends, those kinds of things, they're what bring color and life to you. You know, so we just want to see characters that we're going to grow to love over the course of what is a very long game. And we want to see you in an experience that's going to make you grow as a human. So you have to have that base level of, I can get through this, I'm going to be good at this, I'm going to throw myself into it. Risk takers, confidence, that kind of thing. They're the people we're after. The people who said, you know what, I was 16 and I moved to a completely different city because I wanted to see the bright lights. You know, those are the people who are going to do stuff in Survivor because they're like... They take the risk. That's what we want. But fans, please apply if you've got that. Oh, then my my audition tape is on point then. I will be emailing <laughs> in. It, it's it, everything you just said. I already did it. I already did it, honey. And look at that. <laughs> you, you just going to send your original audition tape over? <laughs> <laughs> okay. I want to visit the rumor mill for a second because there's a lot of rumors flying around about Australian survivors. So you can yay or nay these, mm-hmm. but like I just want to just want to <laughs> run them by you. Okay. A gossip podcast just came out this week with all kinds of claims about heroes versus villains, including I've seen this. that challenges were rigged in favor of certain contestants idols were hidden where specific players would find them that producers are tipping off players about when to play their idols how do you react to these kinds of rumors look i i think that any the fact that people are talking about the show is good right the fact that people want to snipe at the show is not necessarily good but i will say that none of that is true even if I wanted it to be true, it's not possible. You know, you can't 
you can't maintain the integrity of the game if you're literally just, you know, Ricard walks up to the well and the producer gives him an idol. You know, you, you it's not it's not possible because the other contestants they're watching like a hawk. Everyone's watching everything. You can't get away with that. So there's no way to keep the game as it is and affect it in the way that that particular article describes. Challenges being rigged like people hold, I think they said people hold sandbags with less weight in them. It's always a percentage mm-hmm. of your body weight. So of course there's going to be less weight in the lighter people's ones. You know, So if it's a 5% of your body weight, Sean's carrying around five kilos, whereas Haley's carrying around you know, 600 grams. So there's there's a difference, right? In terms of, I think what was the yeah. other claim that the George winning the auction was no coincidence. I'm like, that's crazy, man. Like, the, the, there is absolutely no way to affect the game. I wish, like, secretly, I wish I could. But uh, <laughs> so I'm just going to love the fact that the brilliant game happened and relax into that and be glad I was there to witness it rather than think that it was too good to be true, you know? Yeah. I would also add in in this specific example, they said, oh, well, uh, Shawnee was lulled into not playing her idol because they didn't want George to go home. Well, guess what? When Shawnee went home, George didn't get any votes. (laughs) Nina got votes. But but also, do you think I wanted Shawnee to go home? Exactly. <laughs> like she's literally exactly. the most iconic player in Australian Survivor history, and she's being voted out by the best player in Australian Survivor history. It's a producer's nightmare. It's like yeah. I'm going to lose one of the best players ever. I, if I could have told her play her idol, I would have, but I can't. So I next time, tell her. Okay, Please. sure. <laughs> I just waltz on into tribal. <laughs> Uh, Okay, final one. We have it on good authority, and this is from a former player, Mm -hmm. that Jonathan gets spritzed or oiled up before a challenge so his muscles look nice and sweaty. Well, what I will say is Jonathan has a makeup artist, um, and that makeup Mm -hmm. artist applies um, uh, sun cream. So Jonathan's very Mm -hmm. uh, protective of his skin as he is want to do in those hot climbs. Um, mm. And the makeup artist uses a spritz spray for the sun cream. Ah. So while it looks like he's being oiled up, he's actually being sun creamed so he doesn't get sunburned when he's out there for hours and hours. And mm. if that job ever opens up, will you let me know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure, sure, absolutely, yeah. You also get to deal with him uh, and uh, when he's you know covered in – rain and stuff like that and dry them off it's kind of your dream job sure that's perfect oh (laughs) quit nuclear this is this is your new path (laughs) um what's it been like for you and the rest of the crew to see australian survivor so warmly embraced by the international survivor community like what's the pride there it's it pride level is high i mean the fact that i'm talking to you guys i just i really i'm very very happy that what I could bring to the show has been so warmly loved. And I'm petrified about the next one and how do we follow it up? You know, it's going to be the difficult second album for me as EP, but it's also going to be the difficult eighth or ninth album of Australian Survivor. I think, how do you stay in front of the wave before it crashes on your head? You know, you're just surfing along nicely and and you're just staying, just, just staying in front of it. I, 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 think it's going to be a very difficult thing to follow up but i'm honestly chuffed that we could produce this season but so much of it 
was fate, you know, and it's like winning the lottery. Like, how do you say, how proud are you that you picked the winning numbers? It's like, oh, I'm really proud. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the, I, all the thanks go to the, first of all, the crew, but second of all, the cast, you know, that they are just, they came in with the right idea. They were like, we're going to give you some good Survivor. Um, and they did. And that's what I love about the Shawns, sorry, the Georges and the Shawnees and the Aiden, the Shawns and the Haley's. you know, all these returning players who, mostly the returning players because they knew what they were getting in for, but they threw themselves into it and they went down the torpedoes. I'm giving you a good game. I'm going to make those moves. I'm going to try that stuff. I'm going to throw my idol around my head and clap and say, I'm the king of survivor. You know, <laughs> um, Although no, I will tell you, knowing George, I think that tribal was probably the only time I really saw him threatened in the game. I think he was really, really threatened by Simon's win that day. And there's not much that throws George off kilter, but um, that was that. And then second to that, the way he dealt with it is testament how, to how brilliant a player he is, that he could go, here's a situation I'm threatened by. I'm going to flip it on its head so that not even the producers know who's going to go home. It was like, because we don't hear their whispering. We don't hear what they're saying. We only get that in post because the ambient noise is so loud and, we can't hear their mics at that level in the control room. So we don't know what they're saying in those whispers and when they're changing the plans and that kind of thing. So when Fraser went, when they all started writing down Fraser, we were just looking like at each other going, what has happened? Um, but yeah, it was, we were gooped in the control room. <laughs> That's so interesting that you can't hear them. That like, that is a yeah. really fun tidbit to know. Yeah. We try like <laughs> we had, we, we, you know, we're, we're listening to their mics to try and hear, but because yeah. the, la- the, the sea is really loud and the fire is really loud and Jonathan's talking and probably someone else is talking as well. So it's, it's very difficult until you get into a post production type of situation where you can literally isolate their microphone and hear exactly what they're saying. Generally we don't know. So we're just kind of, flying blind so you got the you got the survivor viewer experience that day like yeah you, you yeah. were as as blindsided as the audience and i may have stood up and applauded in the control room and given george <laughs> a secret standing ovation after that tribal <laughs> even though he never would have seen it oh well now he'll know now he will know <laughs> um i've had the privilege of hanging out with george and i've i I've never met a more confident human being that is not a cocky human being. Mm. He is just in command of every situation. I mean, we needed more plates on our table, and I've never seen someone more in command. Like, <laughs> well, did you see them? They didn't get more plate. More plate! Like, <laughs> he takes no shit. <laughs> and I love him. I love him. <laughs> I, I, he's a truly interesting and special human. And we're rare. Yes. We're very lucky to have had him on the Survivor franchise. I would put the same David Janay, the Golden God. I'd put him in the same category mm-hmm. of someone who is truly, truly walks into a room and people's heads turn. You know, not just because he's beautiful, but same with George. And he's beautiful in his own way, but he makes heads turn because he he walks into a room and the energy of the room shifts to be controlled by them. You know, mm-hmm. and and that is what makes a brilliant survivor player is they can walk into a tribe camp on the bottom and within half an hour they're on the top and it's like how did that happen he's like the lady at the delicatessen everybody's (laughs) taking their ticket 
Go talk yeah. to him. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I want to ask you about something that Jeff Probst said recently. He commented on the possibility of an international season. He said, quote, We have definitely considered some kind of international Survivor showdown, but we've never figured out a way to do it that we thought would be fun for our audience and still loyal to the format. Obviously, Australian Survivor has brought over... Uh, Sandra Diaz-Twine, you've brought over Russell Hance, you've brought over Nina, although she hasn't actually played U.S., but, you know, she's got close ties to U.S. Survivor. Have you ever considered an international All-Stars season of Australian Survivor? I'll say the same as Jeff and say, yes, we've considered it. I think it's – I I can understand why the U.S. wouldn't do it yet or do it – hasn't done it yet because – as a non-US citizen who is in the US a lot, and you probably understand this too, Sean, the US is very US-centric. You know, they don't really see anything beyond the borders. They don't when you go to America, I'm always amazed how people can't understand what I'm saying because Americans don't hear accents that aren't American, you know, because they don't watch British television, New Zealand television, South African television. So they Whereas we in non-US countries get it all the time. 50% of what's on our TV is American. So we're used to American culture. It's in our homes. Whereas, so I think an American, premium American reality brand introducing all these people from around the world is kind of groundbreaking in a way. Um, and I think that that would be a big step for the for the CBS people to say, we're going to give over half our show to people that the audience don't know or care about. On top of that, America is very patriotic. So, of course, they're going to be rooting for the Americans. Um, and mm-hmm. so, if you have a great Australian or South African winner, then everyone will be like, what? You know, what? what? You know, USA. Yeah. But um, yeah. so, I, I, <laughs> I think I can understand. I was just chanting that earlier. <laughs> <laughs> That's generally what I say when I get up. But the the <laughs> so I think I can understand why the US hasn't done it because there's a it's a big thing to bite off to put half your cast who aren't Australian sorry, who aren't American. I'd imagine it'd be half the cast. Um and then the Australian version is still kind of finding its own feet and we kinda of wanna, you know, make a legacy before we we throw that on. Maybe it's something for that isn't something for a network that isn't like CBS or Channel 10 here, maybe it's an additional extra. Maybe it's something beyond the regular seasons that gets done as a sort of bonus one-off. I don't know. But um, that kind of discussion is a network discussion. I work for the production company. It's a bit different here. Oh, no, it's probably not. They work for Castaway, you know, as opposed to CBS. But we, our production company works in tandem with our network, so we have a different kind of relationship in terms of big themes and pitching and that kind of thing. So, uh, look, I'd love to say it's in the future, but it hasn't – it's it's probably not next time. Yeah. Mm. Is there – are there any moments from Heroes Villains that you wish had made the edit, but we just uh, were never able to see it? It couldn't be included. Yeah, there's probably a bunch, actually, but I can't really think of any off the top of my head. There was actually a pitch – so George, is, George in the final jury made a really great – pitch of Jerry as to why Jerry should win. And so George did kind of Jerry's pitch, but um, Mm. 
uh, I don't think that made the final edit. Did correct me if I'm wrong, because I saw mm, a lot of versions. Definitely of that. not. Yeah, I saw a lot of versions of that episode, and that wasn't in the final <laughs> episode. But um, that was. I just thought that Jerry needed a champion, you know, and George was mm-hmm. definitely that champion. But I think in the end, it kind of became more Liz focused. Um, but then there were other things that, like, so 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 much happens. Um, I think we really caught most of the good stuff. Particularly, I love that on. Matt banter, you know, between the two tribes with Jonathan, the the hazing, you know, between the two tribes is really fun this year. So I don't often also see much that goes on at the beaches. You know, there's, it's not like I, after a tribal council, I go back to the edit suite and watch hours and hours of rushes of what happened at the beaches. I'm kind of relying on what the producers have noted and have said are the big moments of the day. So I always love watching the edits because I'm like, oh my god, that beach scene is so fun, or it's so much better than what you what I thought it was going to be. Like that moment where Jerry was in the chair and just talking about the takedown of the heroes. You know, I'd mm-hmm. seen that scene in text form, but I'd never. When it was cut together, I was like, oh wow, he's badass. You know, so yeah, <laughs> I, I didn't get that sense of it when I read it. Whereas pleasantly surprised when I watched it. So there's a lot that I don't see until. I watched the edits, you know, the rough cuts and things. But up until that point, you know, I don't really know. But I think most of what I saw in the challenges, because I'm at the challenges, obviously, in the tribals, because I'm there, kind of made it. Can you tease anything about what is coming up in the future for Australian Survivor? Obviously, you're starting to think about the next season. I know you're not going to, like, announce the theme here, but is there anything that you can uh, tease us with a little bit about the future? I guess what I can say is it'll be a cast of mostly probably all new characters. I mean, we haven't even started casting yet, so it's hard to – I mean, we've put the call out and the applications are coming in, but, you know, it's a it's a process. Um, in terms of the theme, of course, I, that hasn't been signed off, so I can't tease that. Um, I think uh, – what I will say is I think it'll be – I think we're having some success with the classics – so I think it'll be a version of a classic that we've seen before. That's probably the tease. Interesting. Fun. Fun. Yeah. It's going to be oh, it's Survivor 09, drop the O, keep the 9. That's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. <laughs> <Do> you- <laughs> so we saw some really fun um, outfit choices this year, and I'm curious about brand brands being allowed on the show we had snuffed which i have my hat Uh right here we have street x which liz was wearing who has to sign off to allow these people to self-promote and it's free for them you know how does that how does that come to be look honestly these are these are brands that are owned by the contestants so snuffed obviously um Luke Toki back when he is creeping to jumpers um, and Street X is Daniel's brand. So mm-hmm. uh, look, we generally, if it's, if it's obvious branding, you know, like big Nike logos or Adidas logos are a no go, but um, if it's subtle or if it's just, you know, a shirt that says they know, and that happens to be, that's not the name of the brand. It just could be anything. We just don't want to distracting from the story. So if it's a, Big ass Gucci logo in the middle of your hat. We're not going to put it on the show. But if it's your own <laughs> brand of clothing and you want to wear your own brand of clothing, yeah, power to you. You know, I don't think it's free advertising if it's not something that the audience is going to immediately know what it is. If you've got a McDonald's hat, 
then that's a bit different. Does that yeah. answer that question? Yeah. yeah. No, yeah. definitely, definitely. If it's a KFC hat, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and if the Duchess of Double Bay wants to wear her Gucci sneakers out to the challenge, <laughs> she can do it because she's royalty. When I found out that George's loved one was Kara, that was probably the happiest day of my life. Kara <laughs> like, is coming to Samoa. I loved it. Yeah, it was incredible. fabulous. I have a selfish uh, question to ask. You were not there for Blood vs. Water, but maybe you have the inside scoop. It started filming right after season 41 was airing, where Come On In Guys was gotten rid of because of yours truly. And I'm curious, what was the meeting like? Or were they the inspiration for dropping the Come On In Guys as well? Was American Survivor the inspiration for that? I was not in that meeting. I was not on that show, so I can't say what happened in that meeting, but I can only speculate that the progress you made with that statement was probably discussed in the meeting that happened that I wasn't in. I mean, the fact that we then didn't say it anymore is probably down to you guys. I can't say for sure yes or no, but if I were to speculate, um, because when I got back for season eight, we were just saying, come on, guy, come on in. Um, So... I didn't, you know, want to change it back. So that it, it's just something, John. I mean, but also it's a decision Jonathan made, because you know he's the guy who says the words that come out of his mouth. He gets to decide what comes out of his mouth most of the time. So I think that he um, probably had a real felt the same, you know. And you know, thank you, Ricard, for changing the world of Survivor forever. Only took a few death threats, but we made it through. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to inflate Ricard's ego here with Jonathan thinking about Ricard. Uh, he's he's tweeted me. I, I know he thinks this, about right? me. <laughs> I saw you went, you went, drop the four, keep the one. Uh, you know what? Drop the guys, keep the come on in. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> I like you. Okay. Is there anything we haven't touched on that you wanted to talk about or you want to share about this season or your time on Survivor? Uh, no, I, I think we pretty much covered it. I just don't, I, I, I kind of part of my making myself available for this and wanting to be a part of this is one, love you, love the podcast, think it's the best version of a Survivor podcast there is, you know, kind of like our version of Survivor. But um, <laughs> I, I also, I just wanted to answer the questions because there's so many questions and, and there's so much engagement in this show. Like people do an hour and a half long podcast or some people even do ridiculously long podcasts about it and they want to dissect every moment. And I just want to help people through that. It's, it's not as nefarious or insidious as it seems. Sometimes it's just good fun. And I think that's, that's really what I want to leave anyone who's listening with is it's always done with fairness in mind, with the game in mind, with the characters in mind, with good fun in mind, you know, it's not as serious or dark as it, as it might seem you know i love i know you have a con i love you love a conspiracy theory oh no <laughs> um, and and apart from the fact that 5g is changing us all from the inside mm-hmm, out mm-hmm. there are no conspiracy <laughs> theories on survival like, be careful we're taught we have an american in the room like we oh can't oh, no. don't bring up 5g <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay. Well, I want to thank you so much. This has been a, a great interview because I've never, this is my first time ever. Obviously, Ricard has spoken to production on Survivor before. This is my first time talking to the production side of the show. So I've had some of these questions for a very long time. So it's been a pleasure to be able to ask you. And thank you for a truly iconic, all-time great season of Survivor. you got a lot to live up to with Drop the O, Keep the Nine. <laughs> thank you for having me sean and i'm glad i was able to pop your producer cherry <gasps> see this is why it's thank a gay you. podcast <laughs> okay well thank you so much thank David. you thank you my pleasure thanks guys There you have it, the executive producer of Australian Survivor Heroes vs. Villains. What a great interview. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider rating or reviewing it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can follow us on Instagram to make sure that you keep up to date with all of the happenings at Drop Your Buffs by going to at Drop Your Buffs pod on Instagram. We are also on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash drop your buffs, where we have extra content. We are rewatching old seasons. You will get access to video of our interviews with Survivor alumni and other fun extra content. And we have merch. You can find the link to our merch in the show notes below. We have Drop Your Buffs tees and Black Widow Brigade tees as well. Thank you so much for listening. Bye.